so we've got an advisory service internally at MGIF where we provide sort of consulting to them. We offer a lot of peer learning to them. So things that our clients in Indonesia learn can sometimes help a client in India and help a client in South Africa and so on. So, you know, we really try to think about not just being money, but also bringing expertise to bear and bringing assistance um, in other ways to bear on our clients. Welcome back to Media Voices, everybody. We take a look at all the news and the views from the media world over the past week. Just the three of us. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. And that extract you've just heard is from Mohamed Nanabai, who is the Deputy CEO at the Media Development Investment Fund. So we talked about his work in the early days of online publishing, bringing new media to Al Jazeera, how the MDIF decides which businesses to invest in and why he thinks the pandemic has provided an opportunity for independent media to thrive. Um, they've also, uh, their latest initiative, um, MDIF Ventures, is actually accepting applications now for media companies who are located in countries where access to free and independent news and information is under threat. So like if, that, <laughs> uh, if that applies to you and you want to know more about that, we're going to pop a link into this episode post on our site, voices.media. Well, before we hear that interview and before we do our news roundup, we do just want to remind you one last time about our latest conversations episode. So it's all about how you can turn your evergreen content into podcasting success, featuring insight from Eurosport and Podinstall. You can listen to that by going to voices.media or checking your feed. It's a fantastic chat I had with Sarah Toproff and Aud Barron. So please do check that out because I really enjoyed recording it. And hopefully there's a lot of insight in there for you too. But before that, we've got our news roundup as ever. And there has been a bit of a kerfuffle, I think that's the right term for it, this week about some changes that Apple is making <laughs> to effectively how we measure newsletter success. And Esther, you flagged before we started recording that this is just, everybody's been at loggerheads about what this actually means. Well, it's, Apple's done that thing where it sort of, it puts an announcement out and then it doesn't give you any more information about it. So people who are far cleverer than me have, have spent the week trying to work out what Apple are actually doing. Um, and there are some conflicting views on this. It's like it's like so, going on a safari um, and your guide just shouting, look out, and then not providing any more information. Well, you've got various people pointing at a lion and saying it's a tiger, it's a buffalo. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, so, so what, what, it, what I think from what people have said is happening is that Apple... So Apple have introduced a load of new privacy stuff, which is fine. They, they do that every year. Um, they've said that they're going to hide IP addresses and location in email. That's nothing new. Google have done that like, pretty much for the last eight years. Um, but this, as part of this mail privacy protection they're introducing, um, they're going to ban they're going to ban invisible pixels in newsletters. And this got a lot of people riled up because they were like, oh, well, that's the only way newsletter senders know if their emails are being opened. Actually, it's not. Um so a lot of marketing emails will use pixels, but most emails actually use, um, it's a little system where they load external images. So when you open an email and it, it the the image will sort of call to the publisher's server to say, oh, this person's requested this image. So that's how they know that you open the email. And what Apple has said they'll do is basically preload all images from emails. So you're going to get, suspiciously high open rates probably for quite a while um so it, yeah g g apple essentially said we're basically going to completely screw up the data you get from open rates 
which is causing a little bit of a kerfuffle. Some consternation. Anyone else lost the world to laugh? <laughs> but how about this? Is it is it not time for publishers to make hay while the sun shines? And just before before brands quite realise what's happening, going look at our open rates. <laughs> Oh, we, we certainly got like 60% open rate. <laughs> no, guys, don't do that, seriously. I mean, there, there is a, there's an important, as much as I am bored out my skull talking about this, um, there's an important point because then, well, it just gets so technical so fast and, and that's not why I'm in this business. Um, but there is an important point that, and Esther, Esther's all over this, that this is really important for people trying to understand are they doing a good job or not doing a good job. It's also, it's also there's a lot of commercial revenue riding on this for publishers. Well, how much, okay, yes, so if, here's my question then. How much of commercial revenue is predicated on purely open rate rather than leads um, and, and sales? A, yeah, I don't think... I agree that it has a commercial impact, but I don't think that's people how people sell newsletters. I think they sell newsletters. Well, they sell newsletters all sorts of ways, but they'll sell it on volume. How many of them is actually on the list? They'll sell it on the open rates. They'll sell it on click-through rates. They'll sell it on brand value, being associated with the brand. But you know, I think what, it, open rates are a key way of contextualising the value. The, so, you, you know, you can have a list that's 100,000 subscribers. If nobody opens it, you, they're, they're completely worthless. No, open rates are the way of saying, oh, actually, 40% of our list opens this. Yeah, no, um, I agree. And and I, I know that you know from from my experience working in publishers, it's it, it's it's a key part of convincing people to pay to advertise in your newsletter, saying this is how many people usually open it. So it's, it, that's interesting to me because that that sounds like it's something that you could probably get around with a little bit of conversation with your you know the your ad team and your sales team and say, look, we're no longer selling on this because that's almost it's not valuable anymore, and it's never particularly been valuable. It reminds me of the debate around hits. You know when it's um, okay. So, so this is <laughs> this is where it gets complicated. What else do you measure? But that, but that, but this is what is so freaking wrong with digital media. It just hands power straight to the bean counters. <laughs> Absolutely hands the power to the bean counters. Well, you know, publishing used to be how many people opened your magazine, how many people left it sat in the poly bag. They still sold advertising. It didn't come down to freaking spreadsheets. Yeah, but the but the idea is that the the, the great promise of digital media and I suppose of newsletters by extension. Oh, promise is doing a lot of fucking work <laughs> know, in that. Yeah. <laughs> like, was that you could actually track that stuff. You weren't relying on that evening standard, oh, but, nine but, people but we think read it. Actually, that's bollocks. That's a great, that's a great cost of digital media. Because <laughs> the shysters, ad tech shysters, and publishing shysters, just start bullshitting around those numbers. And that's why you've got clickbait. That's why you've got what Esther just described, people sending newsletters to 100,000 people and no one freaking opens them. Quality gets lost in this conversation. And that is Substack's Hamish McKenzie, whether you agree with Substack or not, he said, has the big quote on Twitter from him is, for those wondering how much Apple's move to block email pixel tracking might affect newsletter publishers, not much. His point is... 
It's about your subscribers. It's about how many people you've got. Are you doing a good job to keep them, win new ones, and keep the ones you've got? The end. Or that I, 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 actually, I was going to say yeah, dot 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 question oh, I mark. With this. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think uh, like like all things, there are there are different types of email newsletter, and some people will be unaffected by this. Great, you know, if 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 you if you've got quite active unsubscribe and subscribe lists, great. But I'm I'm thinking especially, you know, we put together a daily newsletter. You can sign up at Voices Media. <laughs> but for us, um, we try and kind of within that newsletter you know we put clicks and we put links if you're interested in more but the whole idea is that if you if you go into your inbox first thing in the morning um you don't have to click through we try and provide enough information that you can kind of read the little summary and think okay you know i, I understand what's going on if you're then interested you can click through so for me click through rates aren't the most important metric for me it's who opens that every morning and if if we suddenly can't find that out it's, to me, subscribes and subscribes are, are less of a thing. It's like, well, to me, for that daily newsletter, the measure of engagement is who reads it every day. I think what's more important, and this is a little bit inside baseball for kind of media voices strategy, I suppose, but for me, the the key metric is has always been subscriber number. That's how I've been thinking about the success. We've been seeing it grow. You know, we do have that tiny bit of churn, but it's nowhere near as bad as it could have been. And to me, open rate is it's very useful to see how successful an individual newsletter has been. And, you know, we've we then we have done a little bit of um, analysis based on that. You know, typically when we write about Substack and we include that on the subject line, open rates are higher. So it's useful for us <laughs> as a bit of an internal metric, but to me it's not the most important part of it. No, I, mean. you know, I think this is this is the thing is that when you're looking at this, you know, it should almost be a pie chart of you, you take all these different things into account as part of what is making your new success. Absolutely. But for, for, for me and for the type of thing we do, this is quite a big chunk of that. Well, what's that? Okay. What's that? I agree with you. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm actually totally playing devil's avocado here because I do agree, <laughs> I, I do agree with you. I look at those numbers on a regular basis, but following your logic, we would have Substack in the headline five times a week and you you you're the one that says we don't we shouldn't do that well, and, we sh- and you're right get, we shouldn't people, do that people get so turned off by that if we become a substack only newsletter but that's publishing that's the point but i'm not because you're you're, abs- you've, you're absolutely right it's about figuring out what works and then not overdoing it it's about not killing the golden goose and that is where Click-through rates and open rates actually get, they mangle that kind of publishing instinct because you're following the numbers. You're not following what your audience wants. What's, what I thought was drop. What I thought was also interesting in this, to, just to change the tack slightly, is this was among a bunch of different changes that Apple was had announced effectively, one of which was a change to how notifications are pushed on their devices. And for the news publishers who rely on kind of push notifications for to stay relevant around breaking news, that's going to change how they you know strategize around that. So the big thing for me is once again we need to reevaluate our relationship with the platforms and with the tech providers because look they can just turn off this figure as we've seen, and it's caused consternation. Nobody quite knows what it means. 
And you know, I think that, that that's what actually gets me about this as well. And, and Thomas Bateau has written a great piece about this because he's also got quite angry. Well, he also got quite angry about it. Is that Apple have like Apple have presented this with the big PR spin? You know, we really care about your privacy. Um, you know, we don't want these kind of evil big tech platforms snooping on what you're doing. And people are going, "Yay, great!" And actually, all Apple have done is essentially walled it all off, and and they're still using all the data within their own. Um, ecosystem so you know they've, they've they've developed all these personalized podcasting tools there's all this other stuff going on where they've said oh if we'll take your data and we'll use that your personal data to personalize things and to make the experience better for you but we're just not going to share that with other people and and it's just it's just this kind of hypocrisy packaged up that that mm. really irritates me I mean, that goes way back, doesn't it, to Apple being a hardware seller rather than, like, Facebook or Google being advertising sellers. That's yeah, why yeah. they've they've always had this, we don't care so much about data. That's changing for Apple. So much more of their business is about supplying services that data is really, really important. In conclusion, please sign up to the Media Voices Daily yeah. Briefing. I, uh, I got more excited about this than I actually thought I was going to. <laughs> Good. And now on to the news in brief, and Rupert Murdoch has written down the value of Sun newspapers to zero, effectively classifying it as a worthless asset to the business. But let's be real about this, the, the Sun titles are not going anywhere. Uh, Murdoch has previously demonstrated he is willing to run his news businesses at a loss if it means keeping the influence that they give. It's not a worthless asset in the sense that he still uses it to influence conversation and public perception about things. It's just a worthless asset in that there is no perceivable path to future significant growth from here, from where it is. Why is, why is, why is he done this now? Because th this is one of the ones where I took the morning off work and I suddenly came back and this had happened and I couldn't quite work out what the background Everyone was. Everyone was singing Ding Dong, the witch is well, It's dead. actually literal. It's about balance sheets. Mm. But the, but number, the, num the numbers are in. The Sun is the like sun the second biggest, biggest news brand in the UK. UK. Yeah. And crucially, there is no obvious path to profitability, which we've been saying for ages. They, they've made some really bad choices about how they try to monetize their audience and things like some bets have just not paid off at all. Um, Maybe they should re re resurrect their... Uh, paywall. Pay paywall, yeah. <laughs> just resurrect the paywall. The best bit about this whole story is it that it, it proves the population of Liverpool right? <laughs> that they're worth... That, 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 Sorry, that proves the population of Liverpool right that the sun is actually a worthless rag. <laughs> so earlier last week, a CDN called Fastly had an outage for around an hour and it ended up taking a significant number of websites down with it. Um, so Reddit, Spotify, Amazon, the New York Times, the Guardian, the BBC and many other publishers were basically left with broken sites, uh, which is quite awkward. <laughs> Um, I think my favourite was The Verge, who decided to start a collaborative Google Docs and forgot to turn editing rights off for everybody. So that descended into chaos quite quickly. Uh, the Verge. <laughs> my favourite was Alex Hearn at Guardian, who basically turned his Twitter feed into a live blog. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's in a way, it's terrifying. Quite how vulnerable so many yeah. of our major uh, sources of news are reliant on these tiny little nodes and tiny little connections. Well, the UK government went down. Yeah. According, <laughs> according to a new survey, 10% of the UK population, that's 10% of the UK population, are now willing to pay for online news. Box! <laughs> uh, this is just nonsense. 
18 to 24 year olds are likely, least likely to pay, well, no shit, 5% of them. Um, but it says that more than twice of them are likely to pay for podcasts, that's bollocks. Um, 47% are willing to pay for movies and TV. Yeah, I get that. I believe that one. There's one number in this. Um, okay, but, but why is that? Why is 10% such a... <laughs> Such because an unbelievable number. I, I I get the the time that we did that story that it was forty percent. I get why you raised your eyebrows like that. But um, so the Reuters news report said that seven percent of Brits actually pay for online news. So an extra three percent being willing to pay doesn't seem. Um, uh, yeah, I think I think ten percent is yeah. I think ten percent is actually under the European average, especially, especially post pandemic. Or is it, can we say post pandemic now? Almost post pandemic. Nope. My, my, my thing about this is it's a self-reporting thing and it's willingness to pay. And if you're asking people, oh, would you pay? Obviously, they're going to say, people are going to say yes to something that they perceive as being important, yeah. like the news. So I think it's probably slightly less than that. But that's it's not as unrealistic, I think, as you're making out, Peter. I think we'll be there in a couple of years. I'll just, yeah, maybe. <laughs> I just don't buy it. I absolutely don't buy it. Well, we have to, how many times have we had this conversation? Quite At the lot. peak of people buying newspapers, what was the percentage of newspapers? I can't remember, but it was like 2% or something. Uh, moving on, Google has agreed to pay 220 million euros and, quote, change the way its business works across the world after a French antitrust probe said that the US tech giant used its dominance over ad sales and purchasing to distort the market to its own advantage. No fucking shit. While Google has pledged to make changes to ensure that its rivals can compete fairly to access ad space, they'll probably make a couple of wee little sops, little concessions there to try and get people off the back. But yeah, no, no shit. This is it's a competitive market. We know that they have monolithic and monopolistic tendencies. This doesn't seem surprising to me at all. But I think it is one example, and it's quite a good one, of where um, government pressure can actually a small admittedly but it can it can make small changes that could actually make a big difference to other businesses and there there seems to be a critical mass of government action coming now you know the german there was a german ruling this week as well yeah oh last week sorry um, so i don't know yeah, yeah you're right i mean pff, what do they care about 220 million euros and change <laughs> Anyway, talking of tech giants, Facebook is launching its email newsletter platform Bulletin this month, but only a few writers will be able to access it at launch. So the platform, which has always claimed it is not a media platform, is recruiting and paying writers um, in order to avoid some of the issues Substack has had with divisive figures using the tools. So who knows when we'll be able to use that, but um, watch out for Bulletin and I guess probably skewed open rates. That's a that's a there's a control thing going on here which actually for facebook is par for the course but in this instance i actually think they've probably called it right um because substack did have some wild stuff going on for a bit well probably still does yeah i i think i think it makes sense for them to basically test it out with a couple of uncontroversial people before releasing the tools on the rest of the world I think the problem with Substack was it was kind of building growth off the outrage engine, mm. uh, which we want to try and get away from, and Facebook definitely wants to try and get away from. So I think this is actually not a bad call on their part. 
<laughs> On the other hand, <laughs> this is a bad call. So in this in, in America, God bless America, um, Netflix has got this new show called Sweet Tooth, which is all about human animal hybrids. I think it's a Marvel thing. No, isn't? it's not. It's not Marvel. It's a it's a comic. I think it's Image, but it's not Marvel. Um. Anyway. They ran this advertorial with USA Today where they put a wraparound cover on USA Today with, a, you know, basically in a tabloid format saying that these human-animal hybrids was, you know, taking over the world or whatever the storyline is. <laughs> Some great people believed it. Very similarly to they believed that War of the Worlds, when uh, what's his name, Austin Wells did it, was was a real, <laughs> real news report. I mean, Jesus, in today's, in today's day and age, in this day and age, isn't this mental, or is it not? Is this? Am I missing something? I can see people saying with this one, oh, you know what? It's so far beyond parody that you could get away with it as a piece of advertising the worst is still when you get uh, politicians doing it doing these wraparound covers that mimic the front cover that's yeah. when i think there's a danger when it's like this half half boy half deer is coming to eat your children that's probably <laughs> when you can go you know what that's fine but it's not though, because people actually believed it. People, yeah. are, people are stupid. Yeah, see, I mean, see, think... why, why, why do people believe that? Why do people believe that, and they don't? They don't then believe that you know the vaccine is safe. It's like I think you can have a go at, at Gannett or the USA Today for selling their front cover. You know, something a bit dodge about that. Now is the perfect time for any governments who are actually working on human animal hybrids to slip them out, because everyone will just believe it's parody. <laughs> So this week I spoke with Mohammed Nanabai, who is Deputy CEO at the Media Development Investment Fund. I started by asking him how he ended up in investment and funding after a career in technology and publishing. So it was, you know, uh, I guess the best way to describe the journey is one of serendipity. Um, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I didn't set out to become an investor. Um, and I didn't set out to work in the media industry, but I always, you know, uh, growing up had two deep passions, um, technology and social justice. Um, and in the 90s, you know, when I was at university in South Africa, uh, I ended up inventing my own degree where I majored okay. in computer science and history. And I guess today it's pretty normal for people to do these dual humanities and science degrees. And many journalism schools run degrees, you know, with computer science in them as a selling point. Uh, but that back then it was quite novel. Growing up, one of the things, you know, I spent a lot of time uh, on the Internet, working with Internet communities, building Internet communities, um, building on the early web. And uh, I landed at Al Jazeera. Um, I didn't go there to work in media. You know, I went there to work in technology. Um, and it was 2004, and when I got there, um, I'd left South Africa, I went to Qatar, uh, and I quickly realized that while, you know, the technology part was interesting, what was really much more interesting was the impact that media, uh, the internet would have on the media business itself. Um, and I started banging on uh, the director general's door saying, hey, this you know, media thing's going to change radically. Um, it's going to change this broadcast business that we have. Uh, and I think I finally annoyed him enough where he said, fine, you know, go, and, uh, go and do this thing. And we invented a title uh, with new media in it. And uh, I then put together 
you know, sort of the most amazing cross-disciplinary team of developers, journalists, and business development people. And, uh, you know, everybody was super young and super excited about what uh, the internet would bring to the media industry. And, uh, you know, this team sort of went on to pioneer um, what then we called distributed distribution, where we'd use emerging platforms to get Al Jazeera content out to new and often younger audiences. Um, you know, right now, you know, this describing this, it seems uncontentious, right? Everybody does this. Um, but back then, yeah. it was quite revolutionary. Uh, yeah, other media companies were suing YouTube while we were going full stream ahead, uploading our content. Um, you know, we were early to thinking about citizen media, um, using social networks for distribution. We licensed our content under Creative Commons um, and really just built a lot of cool stuff um, as a small group, you know, working sort of adjacent to the newsroom and the main uh, media platforms at Al Jazeera. And, uh, you know, lots of people in that team, you know, went on to become leaders in the industry themselves. You know, uh, they built AJ Plus um, and all sorts of really uh, important media outlets that we have today. But um, I'd done that for a while at Al Jazeera. Um, and then I stepped back and took a strategy role across the network, um, you know, looking at the business and looking at sort of the wider issues that the network was facing. And you know, this was a time when the network was growing. Um, Al Jazeera English was just getting started. Um, they had started up some sports channels, a documentary channel. And uh, uh, about a year after sort of looking at strategy, um, I was asked to come in interview to run Al Jazeera English's online operation. Um, you know, and, and it was uh, quite a different step for me because, you know, while I'd focused on media product and uh, online, um, this was really an editorial role. Yeah, that, that, that's what I was going to ask. Is it that, that sounds like a much more editorial role compared to sort of product and development and technology. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what was, I guess, the, the big step at Al Jazeera at the time was, you know, we had done all this stuff in new media. We had seen the intersection of where the web and where mobile was leading us thinking about this. And at Al Jazeera English at the time, you know, we were really trying to get to audiences. It, it started off as a satellite television channel, um, but there was a limit of who could reach it. And how did we get that great content that Al Jazeera English was producing and put it in, put it in front of people? Mm. Um, and... Uh, uh, it was at that time, you know, we were, people were thinking about this. Um, like I said, that background that I had in, you know, history and, you know, uh, these sorts of things had me engaged in editorial, but not as a journalist at the time. Right. Um, so, you know, I had uh, interviewed for this job. Uh, I'd got the job and uh, I'd walked into the newsroom, um, you know, and it was, it was a really fascinating time to walk into a newsroom because um, around that time, 2008, 2009, uh, we were sort of a decade into the first generation of internet journalists um, and people doing news on the web. Um, and what it had, you know, so there were people who were certainly at battle scars of fighting those online battles in their organizations of saying, we're going to do stuff on the web. Um, but a decade in, you know, they were pretty set in their ways of how they did things. And now the internet had brought all this next wave of change where it was all about social media um, and video and blogging and so on. And, uh, you know, we ended up in this bizarre situation where the people who led the change 10 years ago were now the gatekeepers and resistant to change. Right. Um, so, you know, I come in with this mandate to, to think about how do we take this product um, into the future and build it out. And uh, it was, you know, and that's why I started with saying, you know, uh, a lot of this was serendipity, where we, you know, were, were uh, you know, it was the right place at the right time. 
um, while you know these things were happening um, around us in the industry and you know I, I was able to uh, get involved and really try to drive some change so <clears throat> this was you know a couple of years before the Arab Spring no one knew the Arab Spring was coming but uh, we started thinking about what we do in this newsroom and uh, we quickly uh, realized you know as I'd come into that role that we needed to start thinking about how do we get information off blogs how do we get it get them off you know sort of YouTube as an emerging platform with people uploading video um, and really retooling the newsroom um, in thinking about uh, how to news gather in a different way how to distribute the content in a different way how to think about the audience in a different way um, so when the Arab Spring happened you know the team that we had were you know not only had the local expertise the regional knowledge um, were world-class journalists but they also had the tools to go out um, and really bring this news to the world um, in a way that we had not seen before um, and you know starting from doing things like live blogs going onto the ground and sourcing video um, in Cairo um, really you know Again, you know, things that now we sit back and say, well, this is all normal in newsrooms. At the time, uh, it wasn't and it was novel. Um, yeah. So, uh, but, you know, super exciting time to be building news product. And, uh, you know, uh, after Al Jazeera English, I had uh, uh, done that job for a number of years. Um, I felt like I'd achieved a lot at Al Jazeera. We had built some great teams um, who could take the work forward. Um, and I decided to leave. And... Uh, one of the things that sort of led me to that decision was uh, I had started a company which was really a hobby, like a weekend itch um, at, while I was in Qatar. Um, and, you know, as these stories go, you know, there was something I was looking for online. I couldn't find it. Um, so I started a website on the weekend. Um, and this website had grown to become the largest website in Qatar, you know, outside sort of Wikipedia, YouTube, Facebook. Um, at the time, it, 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 it touched everybody and it, it was really a community website, uh, listings, classified listings website. And um, I, I thought, you know, I need to focus on this a bit and uh, in fact, very quickly uh, sold it and then decided to return to South Africa um, after selling this website. Um, MGIF then approached me uh, and had asked me to come and uh, join the fund. Um, at the time, I was, you know, busy with a couple of other projects. Uh, one of them was a analytics uh, tool that I'd started building and we had won the night news challenge for. Um, so I wasn't quite ready to move on to the next thing. Um, you know, sort of fun employed um, after selling <laughs> the company. Uh, and, but I would went out to meet MGIF and uh, they had asked me to join the board. MGIF is really this, you know, fantastic nonprofit that works on a commercial basis in thinking about media and sustainability. Um, and I'd spent two years on the board and got to know the team, uh, got to know the mission, got to know the clients. And uh, when I was thinking about going back and doing something uh, after after taking some time off, uh, our CEO, Harlan Mandel, said, well, why don't you join us? Um, because that's how we met uh, initially. And, uh, you know, I, I then it was it was a very quick decision to step off the board and join the team. Um, and it's been five years since then. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been uh, brilliant just working with the clients that we have um, and, uh, you know, trying to get uh, support independent media throughout the world. Yeah. Uh, before we get into the um, Media Development Investment Fund itself, um, I, I know you're also a board member at Mozilla, um, and I know that they were one of the early ones to take a stance against things like tracking. Um, 
And and obviously, give, you can't give us all the board secrets, but um, where do you make of where it all seems to be heading now, which is sort of this really fractured internet with all sorts of conflicts and monopolies? Because Mozilla is really one of the driving forces behind some of that. Well, you know, I think, you know, Mozilla has always heritage its mission um, to put people at the heart of the internet um, and to think about how do we have an internet that serves us, um, you know, as, as the entire population that's not only on the internet, but emerging and coming onto the internet. Um, and thinking about this, you know, we really think about um, the technology and how the technology informs us, but also the issues around this that the technology raises. So, you know, privacy, security, choice, um, and so on. So, you know, when thinking about these issues around data and so on, um, you know, the, the, the teams at Mozilla have been working really hard on uh, on this over the years, uh, you know, uh, and one of the things that has emerged recently um, has, is a project called Mozilla Rally, um, which is a project uh, looking at how individuals can provide data um, that's used in an ethical way and for research purposes rather than for monetization. So rather than for tracking you and you know, uh, just trying to make money off uh, the data, but really helping people think about what their data means, um, helping researchers uh, use that data to uh, build better product um, and to build tools for better uh, internet transparency. So I think it's it's an exciting time of change at the moment. I think we're seeing the moves happening in the industry. I think data's top of mind for many people, <laughs> um, and I think it's you know it's up for, it's up to people like Mozilla and other allies in the industry to think about what the tools are and what the technologies are um, for the internet that we want. So tell us about the, the Media Development Investment Fund. So for listeners that don't know, um, wh what is it and what, what do you do? So, you know, uh, at the Media Development Investment Fund, we're, it's actually our 25th anniversary this year. Um, oh. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was founded, you know, sort of in the time when the former Yugoslavia was breaking up and the backdrop of the former Soviet states gaining independence. Um, and the founder of MDIF at the time, uh, Sasha Vushnik, really had this insight uh, that was quite brilliant uh, for the time where he, he, he realized that, you know, as these uh, countries were uh, democratizing, there'd be a need for independent media, but that funding was scarce. Um, and often the funding available would be either tainted by political interests, uh, by oligarchs, big business interests, um, or the traditional funders, the banks and so on, wouldn't take the risk on media. Um, so eventually, you know, MDIF was born as a bank for media companies. Um, it would provide loans to people who are, you know, putting up printing presses, buying radio st studios and so on. Um, and the model turned out to be successful. You know, there were a group of media companies that were independent doing journalism in the pub public interest, uh, were financially successful, paid back the loans, MDIF recycled the money. And, you know, what struck me when I started learning about MDIF um, was you know, it was this organization that had this marvelous ability to adapt as the media landscape changed. So, you know, started doing loans, but, you know, when the business environment started changing, they started moving from just doing loans into doing equity investments into these emerging media companies, taking equity stakes. Um, and, you know, as the world went online, uh, they started helping the existing clients transition to digital, um, started doing investing in online media companies that were starting up. Um, so really being able to, as a funder, uh, adapt with their clients over time and provide solutions to them. So, you know, started off, you know, very much working in Central and Eastern Europe. Um, our work spread across the world. We, we have investments in Latin America, Asia, 
uh, Africa, um, and still a lot of work in Central and Eastern Europe. So we provide two things. We do debt financing and equity financing uh, for media companies who are independent um, and you know working in countries where there's a, a threat to freedom of speech um, or the independent media. So you know, very much working with a, a set of companies that, uh, you know, our thesis is that there are media companies who are commercial, who could be viable, um, have a strong independent streak, uh, provide quality journalism. It's, it's tough to find them, um, but they're real <laughs> heroes, you know, and they're working on an important mission. Um, and our job is to, to help them uh, through financing and through, you know, sort of expertise and assistance to grow their businesses, to become more sustainable um, and to continue to serve the audiences in their country. So, so the aim for when people are applying is that those businesses can be sustainable. It's not a, it's not a sort of philanthropic gesture. They do actually have to return the money. Uh, yes, you know, so, so that's, you know, that's certainly the thesis of this fund. So, we, you know, we're really an impact investment fund. We structured as a non-profit. Um, but we operate on a for-profit basis, um, the funds. Um, but that being said, it is concessionary. You know, we're not trying to get uh, market returns and so on. Um, you know, our primary mission uh, is to assist these media companies. So, um, and, you know, we really see ourselves as partners to them. So we patient capital, you know, we know it takes time, we know it's tough, um, and we'll work with our clients to get them to the point where they can be sustainable um, and where they can grow their businesses. So you actually have quite a lot of involvement with those businesses kind of pre and post investment then? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, you know, we, we, we like to think and, uh, you know, we design our process. So um, from the time when we start assessing a client, we, we, we hope we're providing value to them. So even our business assessment um, is something where even if we don't make the investment, it helps them along their journey as a company. Um, yeah. But uh, what's important about the way we work is, you know, we, we, because we're a we're a nonprofit and we we have a mission, um, we do a programmatic screen up front. So we'll look at a company um, and we have a set of eligibility criteria, and we'll say, you know, is this company providing quality news and information? Is it in the public interest? Um, is it independent of government, uh, larger business interests, um, and so on? So you know, we might do a content assessment to look at the, the journalism, um, and once it meets that screen, and our board of directors says yes, you know. Uh, this, this passes the eligibility criteria of MDIF, then we'll get into a business due diligence. Um, and we'll start looking at the product, the product plans, we'll start looking at uh, how the business is operating um, and what they might need the funding for, um, and then work with them, you know, uh, eventually when we do the investment to help them realize their goals and their aims. Um, so we've got an advisory service internally at MDIF where we provide sort of consulting to them, um, we bring our client base together. We offer a lot of peer learning to them. So, you know, things that our clients in Indonesia learn, uh, you know, can sometimes help a client in India and help a client in South Africa and so on. So, you know, we really try to think about not just being money, but also bringing expertise to bear and bringing assistance um, in other ways to bear on our clients. One of the things uh, about the way we operate is we, we try to build up regional expertise. So we have regional directors uh, who focus on each of the major regions we operate in, um, who are often based in those regions. So, we, you know, in India, we've got a team uh, with 
have somebody out in uh, you know looking at Malaysia uh, and so on in Latin America Africa so you know we, we've got people who you know who have that regional expertise or those regional networks because you know of course you know not one person can cover an entire <laughs> continent um, but they know you know who's who in the market um, and we've got a fantastic investment team as well um, so our investment analysts will work with clients on their business plans um, and on growing those businesses um, so you know there's really a lot of expertise uh, at the MDIF, um, you know, both people who might have been at media companies um, on the operational side, like myself, uh, the former CEO of uh, the BBC, uh, the commercial arm of the BBC um, has just joined us recently as our chief investment officer. So people who have operated as well as people who are experts in funding and the investment side, as well as, you know, sort of regional and program experts. Um, and, you know, we come together as a multidisciplinary team to help our clients. Yeah. Have you got any examples, uh, any sort of favorite examples of teams that have done sort of great things with that investment? Yeah. So, you know, we've uh, we've actually, you know, th there's a lot of them, um, maybe, you know, too many to choose favorites. So, so I'll, I'll give you a couple of highlights. So, you know, we, we've, we've invested in a business in Indonesia called Katadata. Um, and this business was started by three really great investigative journalists um, in Jakarta. Um, so, you know, they've done uh, great journalism in the past, and they had an insight early on um, about the role that data would play in journalism and storytelling. Um, and they took that idea and uh, started building uh, this media company where, you know, they initially focused on the oil and gas industry um, and then moved to sort of more general economic news and journalism. Uh, and, you know, they're really thinking hard about data in the country and how they use that data for storytelling. Um, the business has grown tremendously um, they uncover things uh, that are amazing all the time. You know, they 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 did a they did a piece um, where they mapped out. You know, if somebody was to enter the oil and gas market in Indonesia and needed to get all the approvals and permits, you know, it would take them some you know ridiculous amount of time. Um, you know, sort of impossible. You know, years and years and years just to do the paperwork if everything went smoothly. Um, and the government saw this and said, "Oh my God! Like we didn't even know this uh, <laughs> was the case." Wow. Um, so, you know, uh, you know, so from companies like that that are thinking deeply about sort of the intersection of what they do with data, how do they do the journalism, um, what solutions do they pro provide in their countries, um, to, you know, a, a new company we recently invested in called Hashtag Our Stories, um, where two young entrepreneurs, a couple, you know, had wanted to do something in mobile journalism. Um, and we worked with them, uh, you know, initially and gave them some seed funding and, you know, recently made an investment. and. You know, they, they managed to build a product that's really taken off on Snapchat, um, where they run a number of snows, shows on Snapchat. Um, you know, it's an emergent channel, um, one that, uh, you know, has, they've, they've gained serious traction, they're building their team. And, you know, it's an opportunity that uh, they were unique to see early on. You know, from all the businesses that we spoke to, you know, mobile journalism was an add-on, something to do second. And, you know, they saw that there's a market with young people um, who'd consume video in a different way. Um, and they started building journalism for them and including them in their stories. So, you know, we, we work across the spectrum with clients who are, you know, doing, experimenting, doing really interesting things. We recently launched something called MDI Adventures. Um, this is an early stage fund. Um, and actually, we, you know, we, we're taking applications for it over the next few weeks. 
And uh, what it is, is, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a fund that's looking at sort of making seed stage investments. So we're looking at people starting new companies um, who might have started their companies and are looking for, you know, their first and second round of investment, um, who, are, who have, you know, often wild ideas um, about where journalism is going and where media is <laughs> going. Um, and, you know, we previously ran, you know, a, a fund called Digital News Ventures that was really successful. And this was, you know, around 2012. And it captured a moment of media on the internet when uh, people, you know, and that was sort of the post-Arab Spring moment, you know, when journalism became social, um, you know, things were going viral. We were thinking about those things. Um, and we seeded a number of companies. One of them was Katadata. Um, there's a company called Scroll in India, which is one of the large online media players now um, that were seeded out of this fund. So really great companies that had come out of it. Um, and, you know, we sort of see this moment again happening where there's a shift in the market and, you know, we're looking at direct to our audience. Um, the monetization tools are, are very different from what they were 10 years ago. Um, so this fund is really to say, well, what can we learn from what's going on now? Um, and how do we help this next generation of internet uh, of media entrepreneurs build? Do you think we're going to see a lot more consolidation post-COVID or do you think actually there's it's provided a bit more of a bed for independent media organizations to thrive? So that's, so that's a great question. And, you know, it might sound slightly callous, but, you know, if we're looking for one, for an upside in the pandemic, and, you know, it's really hard to grasp one, uh, given what's been, you know, wreaked on the world. But uh, many media companies had finally had to deal with having unsustainable cost bases. Um, and the pandemic forced every, forced things to become apparent for everyone involved in the business. Um, you know, I think a lot of people just weren't seeing it or didn't want to see it. Um, and, you know, we were blaming external factors for this. And, you know, there's all sorts of reasons we can uh, assign to why our business models weren't working. Um, but it forced many people to deal with, deal with this now um, in one way or the other. Um, and, you know, when the pandemic started very early on, we put out a letter to our clients based on what we had seen in the 2008 crash. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of advice in that letter to them, but uh, two main points were, you need to immediately start cutting costs and you need to start hoarding cash. Um, and, you know, we, we had suggestions of how to try to cut costs without, you know, hurting staff, um, you know, um, because it's a tough time in a pandemic. But, uh, I think what it did was many organizations quickly look at their cost base. They had to do the restructuring that maybe they were thinking about doing for a long time, but just couldn't do um, or couldn't get buy-in to do. Um, and I think, you know, some of them will come out stronger for it. Um, they'll come out as leaner companies. They'll come out, you know, focused on uh, managing their cost base, managing, you know, making sure that it tracks with revenue. Um, so I'm, I'm optimistic, um, cautiously, and I think, you know, Often out of uh, these sorts of situations, people start new things. Um, and, and as well, that's why the fund, the, time, the timing of our fund, you know, is fortuitous in this way. Um, and finally, we ask all of our guests, what's the last thing you read or saw or listened to that really affected you? So, you know, I, I recently read um, a book called Liftoff by Eric Berger. Um, and it's an account of uh, the early years of SpaceX, uh, Elon Musk's uh, space company. And what really struck me about it, because I, you know, I, I've seen the SpaceX rockets, everyone sees the videos of them landing, um, but I never realized the, the history behind it and during the 2000s, what uh, the company actually went through um, to make this a reality. Um, and, it's, and it's quite amazing to think about both the engineering 
um, that had to happen, uh, which was significant, as well as the bureaucracy they had to fight. Um, and, you know, the system of, you know, where, where there was an entrenched way of doing uh, engineering for space, um, an entrenched way of funding it. Um, and it really disrupted uh, all of that uh, when they were building this company. Um, and, you know, one of, the, one of the really interesting things as somebody who builds for the internet um, and builds for media, right? When you're building stuff and something doesn't work or it breaks, you know, you can fix it or you can, you know, uh, you can get to it, right? And we, you know, there's this mantra of move fast and break things and, you know, these kind of uh, platitudes we say when we build for the internet. Um, but really reading about engineering where you're building something where people's lives are at risk or, you know, the costs are millions and millions of dollars to, you know, get the components to work. Um, and then they blow up when you when something goes wrong. Um, you know, it's, it's always quite grounding um, to think about, you know, how we approach what we build um, and thinking through the ramifications of them. So I've got a, a new mic set up. Uh, I brought, I bought a new mic. I bought some foam padding for my walls. It's all, it's hopefully my sound is better than it's been for a while. But the other thing I bought was a Media Voices orange windshield for my mic, for my mic. Sorry. The other thing I bought was a Media Voices orange windshield for my mic. And I bought one for Esther and Chris. You didn't buy just one though, did you? <laughs> no, I bought well, I bought one for you guys as well, because they're really cool. But what I thought was three windshields turns out to have been three packets of windshields. So we've got an extra 12 wind, orange windshields. So anyone who in the next little while donates, subscribes, or gives us money through Ko-Fi, and you can do a monthly subscription, we will actually send you an orange windshield for your own mic. Uh, we'll put some pictures on Twitter. They're brilliant. They look really nice. If you're in the UK, though, because we can't, we can't, I wouldn't want to get through them through customs. And we've talked about the newsletter quite a bit today, so if you are desperate to sign up to that, you can find the newsletter on our website, well, the sign-up for the newsletter on our website, voices.media. So that newsletter contains four of the most important media stories of the day, as curated on and commented on by us, um, and a link to our latest episode. Very soon, we won't know whether you've opened it or not, so <laughs> yay! But until next week, when we'll be back with a fantastic guest and a tour through all the news and the views in the media world over the past week, thank you very much for listening, and do stay safe.